Our scripture reading for today comes from the book of Isaiah, chapter 36, verses 1 through 3, and verses 13 through chapter 37, verse 7, and chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Listen now to the word of the Lord. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. And the king of Assyria sent the Rabshakeh from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem with a great army. And he stood by the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And there came out to him Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder. Then the Rabshakeh stood and called out in a loud voice in the language of Judah. Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. Thus says the king, do not let Hezekiah deceive you, for he will not be able to deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the land of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for thus says the king of Assyria, make your peace with me and come out to me. Then each one of you will eat of his own vine, and each one of his own fig tree, and each one of you will drink the water of his own cistern, until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Beware, lest Hezekiah mislead you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand, that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? But they were silent and answered him not a word, for the king's command was, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and Joah the son of Asaph the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of the Rabshakeh. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary, and the senior priests covered with sackcloth to the prophet Isaiah the son of Amos. They said to him, thus says Hezekiah, this day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there is no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. When the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard, with which the young men of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. The word that Isaiah the son of Amos saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days 
that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many peoples shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. The word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Uh, please uh, pray with me. Lord, we thank you for this day that you have made and for your word. Help us to hear now a word from you that we may know you, that we may grow in our love for you and in our service for you. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Welcome uh, to our service, and um, before I get to the sermon, I want to let you know that next week is our Thanksgiving service, and as is our tradition, uh, I would like to invite all of you, all of you, every single one of you, uh, to share a word of Thanksgiving next Sunday, okay? Um, as you know, it's our tradition um, every year for that service, we ask the congregation to share a word of thanksgiving. And so to help you this year, we have a couple of prompts uh, for you to organize your thoughts around. One for our children, uh, and then one for everyone else. So the parents, those of you who have children uh, in the, um, the kids' ministry, um, they will be using this prompt. God reminded me of his promises when blank. So the kids are going to, have to think about, God reminded me of his promises when blank. And then they're going to share what that is and then conclude with, that is why I will not forget my God. So uh, Miss Catherine is going to be explaining that to the kids and parents, you should receive an email later so that um, you can work with that. Uh, I understand that the kids have been uh, working through and learning about the God of promises and how to remember the God of promises. And so this will be one more way of remembering. So I want to encourage uh, all the parents to help your children uh, to encourage them. I know some of them might be a little bit um, afraid of speaking in public, but to give them that um, encouragement so that they will speak and share and to help them kind of really solidify that memory uh, in their lives, okay? For everyone else, so that's, uh, I guess, junior high and up, uh, the prompt that we'll be using um, comes from Lamentations uh, 3, and this is a prompt suggested by uh, Mr. Charles, and it's going to be this. Lamentations 3, 21 says this, but this, I call, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. And so it's an opportunity for each of us to identify what this is. What, what happened in the past year that you can recall 
that gives you hope moving forward. And so um, I want you to remember to recall this something that gives you hope for this year. All right? So, for example, um, this is something that I, I would, uh, I might have shared next week, but I'll just share it with you today just to give you an example. So, you could say something like this I call this to mind. Um, after my mom died, you know, I was very much worried about uh, my dad. Uh, he got into a kind of a, a depression, he was very uh, unmotivated. Uh, I wasn't sure how he was going to eat. Uh, and, and then COVID hit and he was alone. He didn't have his church community to meet with and so on. And so I wasn't sure how he was going to come out of it. I wasn't sure when I could visit him. I wasn't sure how to help him in, in any sort of way. And, um, you know, I was wondering what was going to happen. Um, but this past year, he, he just really came out of it. And he's come back to more of himself and even more of himself. I think I've shared with you before that, you know, my dad's someone who I wasn't sure knew how to boil water or make lamian because, you know, anything that had to do with eating or the kitchen, you know, my mom took care of. And so I was very worried about that part of it. And in the beginning, he was just basically um, getting uh, frozen foods that he would just reheat. Uh, but in this past year, you know, he's been telling me like he's cooking stuff. He's making these like Korean dishes I never even heard of. And he's like, I don't know, it's like, it's, it's just shocking, you know? And it, but it's, so, it's such an encouragement. And um, I don't know how serious it is, but he even said that he's thinking about maybe taking cooking classes, you know? And I just thought, wow, that's really, really different and not what I expected. And so I, I saw that, I can see now, looking back, the grace of God working in his life. And it's, it's happened slower than I had wished, but I can definitely see it. And so it's been an incredible recovery and I'm so thankful for that, for God. And so I call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. Okay, so I, I hope that, again, this prompts us the way for you to try to, to remember something, uh, to share a story that gives you hope, that will give the congregation hope. Um, and as I said, I, I want, I'd love for every single one of you, like every single one of you, and that includes everyone who's joining us on Zoom, uh, I want everyone on Zoom as well to share, everyone in the chapel, everyone in the fellowship hall, like every single person, so that next week we have a service that is four hours long. I would love that, to hear all of your testimonies so we can laugh and cry and praise God for all the ways that he has just blessed us. So really, I'm totally happy with being with you all day next Sunday. And so... Um, Please think about sharing something. Uh, this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. All right? All right. All right, so last Sunday, um, I said that after the reign of King Solomon, the nation of Israel entered into a civil war, and it was divided into the northern and southern kingdoms. Our reading this morning uh, takes place, it says, in the 14th year of King Hezekiah. King Hezekiah was one of the kings of the southern kingdom. And because this particular battle is very important, we can precisely locate this event to the year 701 BCE. Uh, we have outside sources, Assyrian annals, for example, also tell us about this particular uh, incident. 
So about two decades prior to this, the northern kingdom has been completely wiped out by the Assyrians. So the northern kingdom has fallen. It's been about two decades later, and the Assyrian army is now poised to destroy Jerusalem and to wipe out the southern kingdom as well. We're told in our reading that the fortified cities around Judah near Jerusalem have been all wiped out, and now the army is laying siege to Jerusalem. And it looks like it's only going to be a matter of time before Jerusalem and the entire southern kingdom falls to the might of the Assyrian Empire. So perhaps to avoid a long, drawn-out siege in which everyone will suffer, and perhaps, you know, why delay the inevitable with futile resistance? Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, sends his emissary, the Rabshakeh, um, and, and the Rabshakeh is just a title, meaning um, like a, a head steward or a, maybe a, a commander, something like that. And so he sends him to negotiate terms of surrender. He's met by three members of Hezekiah's court to discuss those terms in a private meeting. But instead, the Rabshakeh speaks very loud so that everyone can hear the words. Not just these officials, but he, he wants to instill fear into all of the defenders of Jerusalem. He tells them, do not listen to King Hezekiah. So King Hezekiah has been telling his people, the Lord will deliver us. The Lord will help us. Trust in the Lord. And the Rabshakeh says, hey, come on. Do not listen to your king. He's a fool. He cannot help you. Your God cannot help you. Look at what we have done. Every single other nation, every single other God who tried to stand up to us, they've been wiped out. Do not believe his words. And said and says, listen, make your peace with us. It's inevitable. If you do that, then you can eat from your trees, you can drink your own waters, you can have peace. And then when you go into exile, even your exile will be pleasant. You'll go into a land that has got, you know, fruit and bread. And so this is the best option for you. And of course, he's got the entire force, the mightiest military on the planet standing behind him to accentuate his point. Hezekiah faced the imminent destruction of his people and his nation. And the people of Jerusalem were terrified. The nation was facing war, exile, and possible extinction. It's about as dire a situation as anyone can face. Now, I know that the kinds of challenges you and I face daily are not nearly as grave as the situation that Hezekiah and his people faced. Nor are we even involved in a war on American soil. But I also know that many of you are facing some really serious and difficult challenges in your life. And that some of you are looking at situations that almost look like it's just hopeless. We may not be afraid of war or uh, imminent death right now, but there are many things that we are afraid of, things that worry us, keep us up at night. Fear for the safety and health of our children and our aging parents. 
fear about COVID or cancer or climate change, fear of what others think of you, fear of self-doubt, fear of partisan Republicans and Democrats and the country splitting further apart, fear of Muslim strangers, Mexican immigrants, and Afghan refugees. Fear of an uncertain future and a regretted past. In times of crisis and fear, the temptation is always, the temptation is always there to abandon our trust in God and to turn from the fear of the Lord and surrender ourselves to the fear of Sennacherib and the Rabshakeh. To turn to the fear of whatever threatens us. Now notice here that Hezekiah seems to be doing all the right things. He hears the news about Jerusalem. He humbly puts on sackcloth as a sign of mourning. He goes to the temple presumably to worship and to pray. I'm sure He's begging God for deliverance. And then he reaches out to Isaiah. But when he calls upon Isaiah for prayers, he says, pray to the Lord your God. He does not say, the Lord my God, or the Lord our God, but the Lord your God, Isaiah. It suggests to me that Hezekiah's own faith and trust in God in this moment is understandably wavering because of this precarious situation. And even though his own faith might be shaking, to his credit, he still has enough faith that he asks Isaiah for prayers. He'd call upon the people to trust in the Lord, but maybe now he's not so sure. When you're afraid, when there doesn't seem to be much hope, it is, it's easy to lose sight of God and to let that fear overwhelm you. And sometimes you have just enough faith to ask someone to have faith for you, to pray for you. When your own faith is wavering, when you can't even pray for yourself, asking for prayers asking for prayers, that might be the best and the most faithful thing that you can do. Isaiah hears the plea for prayers and the first word of God that he passes on to Hezekiah is do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. That is God's first word. That's the first word of the gospel. Do not be afraid. I wrote a couple of weeks ago in the Wednesday Word, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that the fear of the Lord is salvation and life, that the more we fear or are in awed reverence of God, the less we will be in fear of everything else. Because when our, when our fear threatens to consume us, when our fears fuel more fears, that's when we have to look even more to God. You remember the story of Peter walking on water 
Jesus had come and he started to walk on water. And then he saw the wind and, and probably the waves and probably thinking, oh my gosh, I can't walk on water. And he started to sink. When he took his eyes off of Jesus and he looked to the things around him that rightfully caused fear, he began to sink. I imagine that at least some of you are here today because of fears. Maybe you're in a position like Hezekiah and you find yourself or your family or those in your circle of friends in need of help. You're in a dire situation. You've done what you can, but maybe your own faith seems inadequate. Or maybe the situation just seems hopeless. Maybe you've been listening too much to the words of the Rabshakeh telling you to give up, to be fearful that it's hopeless. If that's you, listen to this word. Thus saith the Lord, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Let the church be your Isaiah, the one who prays for you and reminds you of the word of the Lord. Greater is he who is in you than he that is in the world. The love of God is greater than your fears. As Pastor Danny just said, when we have the love of God, when we look to the love of God, perfect love will drive out fear. Do not be afraid, for I am with you always, even to the end of the age. It may seem like the Sennacheribs and the Rabshakas of the world are in control, but they're not. They're not. Do not be afraid. Now in Hezekiah's case, God further promised that the king of Assyria will return to his own land and fall by the sword. You have to read the rest of the next couple of chapters to find out the rest of that story. He's promised that the siege will be lifted and that Jerusalem will not fall. And we know from history that Jerusalem does not fall, that it does get a reprieve. Jerusalem will not fall to the Assyrians just as God has promised. But this was only temporary. Eventually the Assyrians will themselves fall to the Babylonians and then the Babylonians will come and they will sack Jerusalem and Jerusalem and Judah will fall. But then the Babylonians in turn, they will be defeated by the Medes and the Persians who in turn will be defeated by the Greeks, who in turn will be defeated by the Romans, who in turn will be defeated by the Germanic barbarians and on and on and on. War and violence and destruction seems inevitable unstoppable and this incident involving Jerusalem is just one of countless battles we heard also last week about the ongoing violence and the persecution against the Christian church throughout the world but we don't even have to look very far 
If you just look at what's been going on in New Brunswick, for example, you can see just the, the rise in gun violence and murders that's been happening in this city. My, my colleagues in the city tell me that, you know, it's just, there's just been this incredible rise in crimes in the city in the last couple of years. Nationally, the number of murders also has increased significantly. And we might be talking more about some of this other stuff if, if COVID wasn't such, you know, such a giant shadow uh, overcasting everything else. Overall, polls indicate that as a nation, we are not very hopeful about the future of this country or of the world. Based on what I hear and what I see in the news, I have to resist this constant temptation to be cynical and to be depressed and to have this kind of bleak dystopian future of what's ahead. So I know that I need to have an alternative vision to what Sennacherib and the Rabshakeh are telling me. I need a vision, I need a reminder of the vision that is given to us in Isaiah 2. Isaiah sees that in the latter days, this is what's going on right now, but in the latter days, something different is gonna happen. He sees a future through the eyes of God of what is going to happen. He sees the sure promises of God rather than the speculations and rather than through the eyes of MSNBC or Fox News or Yahoo. We have to choose each day that we will listen to what God has to say about who we are and about the future rather than what the Sennacheribs and the Rabshakehs are telling us. Isaiah says, this is the word that I saw. It's a little odd phrasing, right? Normally we'd expect him to say, this is the word that I heard, or this is the vision that I saw. But he says, this is the word that I saw. I think the word that he received was so powerful that it simply just, just flooded his imagination and the word just seemed like a picture, like a vision. He, he could not help but to imagine and to visualize this word. It's a word that was given to him. This is not the dream of a romantic. This is not the wishful and naive wishes of an optimist. This is not the plans of a humanitarian. This is a word from God. In Isaiah, the word comes in the midst of a series of judgments against foreign nations. When it seems like this vision, this word, is least possible. And this is the promise. God promises that in the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. You know, there, there are some people who look at this verse and they argue that a physical temple, that this is talking about a physical temple that will have to be rebuilt in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. 
Uh, I can remember when I was in uh, college and in uh, graduate school, I had some people, um, some Bible study leaders too, actually, who told me that until this is fulfilled, literally, that until the, uh, the temple is rebuilt on, on, the, uh, on the Temple Mount, until the, the Muslims are driven out, and until the Jews rebuild the temple, that Christ cannot return, that this has to be fulfilled, and so that I should be praying uh, for that to happen. Um, I think that's a pretty poor reading of, of what's going on here for a number of reasons, uh, not the least of which is what Jesus said. Jesus is the temple of God. Jesus is the temple of God. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. Jesus is the person, right? The temple is not a place, but God dwells, right? The temple is where God dwells and God is not dwelling in this temple. God is dwelling in Jesus. Jesus is the temple of God. Jesus is in whom God tabernacled with us. And Jesus told the Samaritan woman, a time is coming because God is spirit, you are not going to worship in this temple or that temple or in this mountain or that mountain, but you will worship in spirit and in truth. Mountains, because of their height, strength, their age, the majesty, they're natural places for the worship of God. Remember Noah's ark came to rest on Mount Ararat where Noah built an altar to worship. Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice on Mount Moriah. God gave Moses the Decalogue on Mount Sinai. Jesus himself gave the sermon on the mount, was transfigured on a high mountain, prayed at the Mount of Olives, and was crucified on Mount Calvary. There, there are places where people worship. Zion is not the highest mountain not even in Jerusalem, but it is symbolically the highest mountain because the temple was there and it is the place where God dwells in ancient Israel. In chapter 11 of Isaiah, Isaiah will have this further vision. He writes, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with a young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The nursing sh child shall play over the holes of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Why? For the Lord, for the, for the earth, shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord. So he sees a time when there, there will be peace even amongst animals who would normally be prey and predator. In all of God's holy mountain, that is in all that place where God is, they shall not hurt or destroy. The promise is that one day God will establish justice and nations shall not lift up sword against nation neither shall they learn war anymore. The vision that Isaiah has is of a time when swords and spears won't be needed and instead they will be turned into plowshares and pruning hooks, instruments for farming. 
Instruments of war will be turned into instruments for the production of food and life. It's a radical alternative with massive implications. These former instruments of war and death will now become instruments for fruits and vegetables and life. You know, we didn't get to uh, hear it last week uh, when I gave the sermon on, on Micah, but Micah says these very same words. He, he gives this exact same vision. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. It's a shared vision among the prophets and the people of God. Can I get that um, slide up? Now, I know that in the uh, popular imagination, a blacksmith hammering a sword into a plowshare, uh, this is the, uh, you may have seen this, this is a sculpture that was made in uh, 1957. It's at the United Nations. Uh, it's a sculpture made by uh, Yevgeny Vucetic. Um, it's a popular and inspiring interpretation of this verse. Right? It, it, it has this hope that swords can be repurposed into farming tools. It feels a little to me, I mean, I, I do like it, but it has a little bit of a kind of a, a, a Stalin-esque propaganda for me, rather than just kind of a biblical hope. But um, in any case, you know, the, the Hebrew word here for beating swords into plowshares and beating spears into prune hooks um, is not like beating with a hammer so much, or if it is, it's to really beat it, like to beat it into pieces, to, to even to pulverize. That, that's, that's, the, that's the sense of what it is to beat the sword into plowshares. The implication is that the sword would be so beaten, so transformed, that it can never be turned back into a sword ever again. Some of you may have heard about an organization called Raw Tools. Uh, it was a group that, um, that was formed right after the Sandy Hook uh, school shootings back in uh, uh, 2012 and so they literally will take guns and they will turn it into garden tools so they invite people to, to turn guns in and they will you know melt it and beat it and and make you know spades and I, I don't even know the names of gardening tools but they, they make gardening tools out of guns literally um, their mission is to disarm hearts and forge peace and they are crazy enough to believe that it's possible to solve problems without guns and violence. It's, it's that kind of beating that Isaiah sees. A gun melted into a, a garden spade can never be really turned back into a gun, right? I mean, I, I know you can, but I mean, none of us could do that. That's the sense that these, these swords, these, these spears will not be turned back ever again it's a permanent change. The transformation of swords and guns into plowshares and garden tools is more than simply just an end to violence and war. I read this week uh, that the former president, Dwight D. Eisenhower, the commander of the Allied forces in World War II, 
once gave a speech entitled, A Chance for Peace, A Chance for Peace. And in it are these words. Every gun that is made, every warship launched, every rocket fired signifies, in the final sense, a theft from those who hunger and are not fed, those who are cold and are not clothed. This is not a way of life at all. Under the cloud of threatening war, it is humanity hanging from a cross of iron. He had those words engraved uh, by his, on, on a wall by his gravesite. Every gun, every warship, every rocket, in the final sense, is a theft from those who hunger and those who are not clothed. It's true, isn't it? Every bullet we produce as a nation is a theft from someone who needs food or clothes. Imagine if there were no more need for guns and battleships. Imagine if all that financial resource could be diverted for food, for clothing, for education. It's hard to imagine, right? But that is the vision, that is the future to which God is inviting us to see. And I remind you again that this is a vision that comes from God and that it cannot be realized apart from the word of the Lord. We are invited to go up to the mountain of God, that God might teach us his ways and that we might walk in his paths. The vision becomes possible when the people of God take seriously the word of God and learn his ways and become acquainted with his ways and live accordingly so that God will be the judge God will rule over nations and our hearts. This is our hope. This is not optimism. This is our hope. And this is our witness. Right now, right now, as in most of history, it seems ludicrous to suggest that we will not learn of war anymore. I'm sure it sounds like craziness that I've, you know, we've got our head stuck in the sand. That we're talking about the total destruction of the instruments of destruction. I'm sure that those who heard these words from Isaiah, those who heard these words from Micah, also scoffed at those words. Their lives were violent. Enemies were surrounding them. War and death and violence were a constant in their lives. And if you read through the rest of Isaiah, especially chapters 13 through 23, you'll find that there's just a series of oracles against their surrounding nations. Judgment for what they had done against Babylon, Assyria, Moab, Egypt, Cush, and others those judgments were probably more comforting, more realistic to an oppressed people, right? God is going to judge my enemies and these nations. Everyone can get behind that. And yet the judgment against those nations is not God's last word. He says, in the latter days, later, there is this promise that people from all nations 
including these nations that have just been judged, will gather together and incredibly, they will invite each other to go on pilgrimage to the house of the Lord. All nations will invite one another. Let us go together to the house of the Lord, to the place where the God of Israel dwells. It's the vision we see again in Revelation 7, where John writes, I saw a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It is the fulfillment of what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians, that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Isaiah and Micah, John and Paul and others had this hope. They saw this future in the midst of persecution and defeat and war. And that is our hope as well. That's our witness to the world. In the Revised Common Lectionary, this passage from Isaiah 2 appears as the first reading in the season of Advent because Advent is the coming of Jesus and it points to the beginnings of the fulfillment of this word. And if you think about it, the Advent is just as ridiculous. That the Messiah would come as a baby. That the good news of the gospel would be embodied in this child. And that it would be through his death and the humiliating and painful cross that that is the way of salvation. That sounds even more absurd than that swords would be beaten into plowshares. But in Jesus Christ, this word will be fulfilled as it was first promised to Abraham. Back in Genesis 12, God promised Abraham, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the families, not just the Israelites, all the families, the Canaanites, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Turks, the Germans, the Iraqis, the Russians, the North Koreans, all, all the families of the earth, all will say together, let us go together to the house of the Lord. That's our witness. That's our hope because that is the word that is given to us. It's not, it's not just our wish, it's the promise, it's the word that is given to us and I, I hope you let that vision, that this word, let this flood your brain. Let this word rebaptize the imaginations of what is possible for the world. Let this vision shape your worldview so that we can say, O house of Jacob, O Graceway Church, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us walk in the light of this word. Let's pray with me.
Lord, we thank you for this word of hope that in the midst of all the troubles we see, in the midst of all the violence around us, that you have promised us something better. God, let, let your word of the future, let that vision shape our living together. Let that vision shape the work that we do together. That we might be the children of peace. That we might be blessed as peacemakers. Help us, God, to promote the peace that turns swords into plowshares. So that all together, we may go together to the house of the Lord and learn your ways. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.